0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: Hi, this is Reset, and I'm Seagal Samuel, filling in for Ariel Jim Ross. I'm a staff writer for Vox, And I focus on technology and artificial intelligence and how they affect vulnerable populations for better and worse. Today, we're gonna talk about how tech is being used to monitor and treat the coronavirus outbreak where it all began, in China. China's response to the virus has been very techy. They've used robots that disinfect hospital rooms, drones that yell at you if you're not wearing a mask, facial recognition cameras that tip off police that you might have a fever. This sort of tech could help minimize the risks of a pandemic. And even if it costs people their privacy, maybe that's okay if it lets them keep something more valuable — their lives, right? But what happens after the coronavirus panic ends? Will invasive surveillance technologies just be packed away? Or will they become the new normal, eroding people's privacy not only in China, but also in places like the US.
2: Hey, Rebecca, how are you? Where are you? I'm working from home, trying to avoid being out in public like everyone else.
1: <laughs> Some light social distancing. Light social okay, distancing. Okay.
2: Rebecca Heilweil
1: is a reporter for open source at Vox. She's been covering the rollout of tech products being used to stop the spread of coronavirus, especially in China.
2: Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things we've seen is how, you know, technology that was already being developed or, you know, already exists in China is kind of being modified or sort of re-retargeted to kind of address this outbreak. And I think the big focus has been preventing the spread of infection. And one thing that we've seen that I think is kind of positive and interesting are these robots that are meant to make sure that healthcare workers and people who have this virus are not necessarily directly interacting. There's this one Danish company that's providing a bunch of hospitals in China with a type of robot that goes into rooms and uses ultraviolet light to sort of disinfect it but you know we're also seeing technologies that i might call a little bit more serious or you know more associated with a surveillance structure that does exist in china and seeing how it applies in sort of the case of trying to prevent a pandemic and control an outbreak
1: okay cool so i, I want to get a little bit more into the privacy and stuff like that a bit later but just to break this down a bit so first thing you mentioned is robots so we have robots now being used to disinfect rooms, it sounds like, communicate with sick patients and maybe deliver them some medications, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of a wide range of applications. I think the main premise is that these robots are really helpful for trying to keep those health workers safe.
1: And and this is spreading beyond just China, right? So. Uh, I read that near Seattle, there's a robot that went in with uh, car- carrying a stethoscope that went in to treat an American who's diagnosed with coronavirus. I also saw these videos going around on Chinese media uh, where you see drones kind of flying up uh, to the, the top floors of a apartment building and from the balconies uh, taking the temperature of of the residents, which was kind of— crazy to see.
2: Yeah, I encountered a company that was saying its drones could also spread disinfectant. So while the drones were going around trying to patrol or monitor areas, they were also spraying disinfectant. You know, I think there's this general theme of automation kind of stepping in between traditionally human to human interaction. But, you know, once we put devices with cameras in them and that can sort of function autonomously, it's always important to keep in mind that they can they usually can do a lot of other things once they have those abilities.
1: One other thing I've heard about is these sort of thermometer guns, which is not a term that I had personally encountered until the coronavirus outbreak. Like what, what is that, first of all?
2: They're kind of extended devices, and I guess the premise is that you don't have to be so close to someone to take their temperature. But you know, the New York Times did a great report on this and said traditionally these aren't as accurate as maybe maybe would want them to be. And I think we should be asking the same question about a lot of the technologies that are being. Sort of pushed to us as methods of taking temperature without the traditional <laughs> thermometer. And I think that's that's true certainly of facial recognition companies that are saying, oh, our technology can also guess whether someone might have a fever.
1: Yeah, I even saw this video that Paul Mazur, a New York Times journalist, just tweeted out uh, showing basically these police officers on the streets of Shanghai wearing these facial recognition enabled helmets that let them just look at you and all the people who are, you know, walking across the street. And as they're looking at you, they see this heat map of your body with like it's orange, it's red, it's it's 36 degrees Celsius, it's 37 degrees Celsius. And so they can theoretically be telling just by looking at you in the street if you have a fever.
2: That's the premise. I can't I can't say whether it works or not but that seems to be um, the promise you know it goes back to the same thing once you put a camera someplace it can do more than just the initial task. so in this case these were cameras that maybe were initially outfitted with facial recognition capabilities and now the companies are saying hey we can do something something else as well
1: and my understanding is that ai earlier on in the outbreak was also used particularly in in china to study the outbreak spread, in China, your national ID is linked to your mobile phone number. So they can identify who you are and by your phone, track exactly where you were traveling in a given city at a given time. And then notify the people who are on the same train or in the, you know, the same platform, hey, you know, you might want to get tested and, and that kind of thing. Um, and that can be really helpful in the case of, you know, a a pandemic risk like this. But I guess I wonder if you think it makes sense for citizens to give up some of their privacy, if that can help combat a huge public health crisis.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really tough question. I, you know, I think I'd like to flip the premise of that a bit in the sense that, you know, like you say, these were capabilities that the Chinese government already had, right? So in a way, what we've seen with the novel coronavirus isn't necessarily the expandance of surveillance. It's really just seeing the existing surveillance capacities on full display. And I think that's something that is important to sort of keep in mind. In terms of, you know, giving up your own privacy, I mean, it's important to keep in mind that China has seen the lion's share of these cases and has faced types of questions that, you know, we in the U.S. and maybe in other parts of the world have not had to wrestle with yet. And I think that that's, you know, the average citizen living in China is, you know, facing a really different reality than what we're facing. And I think that's important to keep in mind when we talk about privacy. But, you know, at the same time, any sort of critic of facial recognition or surveillance will tell you, you know, it's worth asking, what is happening to this data? Is it being protected? If we're adding thermal imaging into facial recognition cameras, is that going to go away, or will that be there indefinitely? Mm -hmm. You know, and these are things that we really have to wrestle with. And if you're in the US, it's, you know, it's an important opportunity to reflect on what you're comfortable with.
1: There is something kind of dystopian about an outbreak being used to justify increased surveillance. Coming up after the break, why there's reason to think these new surveillance technologies will become permanent fixtures in China and beyond.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team.
1: I've been covering surveillance technology in China for a couple of years now, and one of the experts I've often called to help me understand it is Tim Gross. He's a professor of China studies at the rose Holman Institute of Technology.
3: Yeah, I think this uh, opportunity provides uh, the Chinese Communist Party with an instance where they can showcase themselves as uh, at the cutting edge of, of new technology, regardless of whether it's invasive or not. In recent decades, especially in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, Kind of the global community uh, saw China as lagging behind or being imitators in terms of technology. Uh, but now they're uh, unveiling and, and kind of uh, unleashing this whole new arsenal uh, of high-tech devices that really showcase just what, what kind of strides they've made uh, in the last two decades.
1: Are there actually any examples from the recent past of China instituting invasive surveillance tech and saying, hey, this is to deal with this very particular circumstance, and then it kind of becomes a more widespread or permanent fixture?
3: Originally, the, the Chinese Communist Party has used threats of, of quote-unquote, separatism um, as ways to justify uh, the use of, of uh, surveillance uh, technology that um, I think many people w- would, would regard as, as invasive. Um, and we see uh, the, quote-unquote, grid surveillance system in the Tibet Autonomous Region, uh, which was largely constructed by an individual named Chen chuang uh, who served as the uh, party secretary of the region. And in uh, 2016, uh, he was uh, promoted to the uh, general secretary of the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Uh, and he, although he was, he was transferred and, and, or, or promoted uh, to this new post, uh, he brought his old playbook with him.
1: Okay, so let me get this straight. This Chinese official designed policies to crack down on the Tibetan people. And because they were so effective, he was then promoted to this top position in Xinjiang, a northwestern region in China. And that's where most Uyghurs live. They're this mostly Muslim minority group. More than one million of them have been held in internment camps over the past couple of years. And so this guy brought these repressive surveillance policies from Tibet to Xinjiang,
3: Sure, yeah. To some extent, you could say that he's the, uh, he's the mastermind of this playbook. And so he brought uh, many of the same strategies that uh, he used and also kind of materialized into uh, kind of concrete action. Uh, and so he brought those from Tibet into the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, even to the extent uh, of those so-called convenience police stations, uh, which also uh, kind of dot the streets of large cities in, in Tibet, especially Lhasa, uh, and we saw those being constructed throughout large cities uh, in Xinjiang, especially uh, Urumqi. My last visit to the region in 2017, I did measurements in in Uyghur districts, and there is a convenience police station uh, erected about every 200 uh, meters. Uh, and of course, uh, these oh, wow. convenience police stations are staffed by. Law enforcement personnel, uh, and they're equipped with surveillance cameras, and and so essentially, uh, it keeps uh, monitoring or it keeps an eye on and monitors the movements uh, of all people that go go back and forth. So I
1: remember actually talking to you two years ago at this point, mm-hmm. and you said to me, Xinjiang is sort of a laboratory or a testing ground for surveillance tech and drones that then gets exported more broadly uh, elsewhere in China and then around the world. Can I ask you to make sort of an educated guess? What do you think the chances are that the more invasive surveillance tech that China is rolling out now in the wake of the coronavirus might become sort of a permanent feature of life in the country?
3: Um, Yeah, certainly. I think this is going to be uh, the new norm. But, you know, surprising to me uh, is that talking with with colleagues uh, in China uh, and, and friends in China, that i you know, i i can't put an estimate on it and, and this is all anecdotal but it's not met with the same reactions that i have with colleagues outside of China, who are, are nonetheless China observers. In, in other words, many people who are from China or have Chinese citizenship put a lot of faith in their party, and they don't necessarily see this technology as invasive. And rather, they have so much confidence in the party that the party's doing this for their own good, meaning not, not the party's good, uh, but the good of the entire population. Uh, and there's almost this blind faith uh, that is not necessarily supporting uh, the use of of new technology and the expansion of this technology. But it's certainly, I think, fueling uh, the Chinese Communist Party to act with impunity uh, to, you know, even make otherwise invasive technology uh, more widespread because there isn't any resistance.
1: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me, particularly in the context of a pandemic risk, that people might actually feel quite reassured that they're country, their government has this big data that can be used to monitor how the outbreak is spreading and can be used to treat it potentially. I guess I wonder, how are people going to then draw a line in the sand at some point when hopefully this virus dies down? And then, well, now we've had these technologies roll out, we've kind of gotten used to them. Is there going to come a point where people have to say, okay, that was fine for a special circumstance, but now- We're not cool with that for general everyday life.
3: Well, I mean, that that would be the response I would hope for. But uh, unfortunately, I think uh, as new mechanisms are introduced in society, uh, it doesn't take long before it's a new norm. For example, we you know, consider smart devices in in U.S. households. If you would asked people 10 years ago, uh, would they want to uh, put in their households a smart speaker that uh, could recognize Mm -hmm. their voice, um, that you could do shopping on, it knows your location? You know, 10 years ago, people would say, no, either think that would be impossible, or number two, think, oh, no, that's that's a little bit too weird uh, for me, yet, you know, it's almost ubiquitous to the U.S. home now. Um, and I, I see that kind of happening uh, in, in China, where um, they're introduced to it, and it's it's normal. And so if they don't have an expectation that the expansion of this technology is unusual, um, well, then I don't think uh, there would ever be any resistance to uh, put a stop to it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I should just say that You know, when we were talking earlier about, oh, most Chinese citizens don't necessarily see a problem with this sort of technology, I should probably say, you know, potentially with the exception of Uyghurs and other religious minority groups who are being very severely repressed by them. But yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying in terms of the the sort of different cultural norm. I wonder whether if this outbreak really becomes more widespread and serious in the U.S., whether we're going to see... Are privacy norms shifting around these technologies too?
3: Yeah, I'm I'm afraid that 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 could be the case, and and I was you know taken aback the first time I went through immigration in the United States. Uh, instead of actually meeting with a, a customs officer, my face was scanned, my picture was taken, and I just handed that form in to someone. And so I think to a certain extent, it is already becoming uh, a norm to have this this facial recognition, and and you know someone maybe like me and others who are watching what direction the chinese government is taking its its population that were a little bit more squeamish uh, when this type of technology is introduced in the united states but i was Again, really surprised uh, when I overheard conversation of people in line with me at the uh, immigration saying how great and, and convenient this was because um, it really reduced the time it took them from, to get from their gate uh, through immigrations mm. and customs and back to their bags. And so people see it as a, as a convenience and don't really think critically about, well, what is actually going on behind those cameras and what's this information being used for and what kind of databases um, is this information going to be stored in?
1: Right. I feel like we'll do anything for convenience.
3: <laughs> right. And and this package as convenience, I think it's a, an easy sell for many people.
1: Could the coronavirus scare actually accelerate the acceptance in the US of these measures that under ordinary circumstances we would be like, mm, no, thank you.
3: Of course, if, if this technology is, is used as a way to reduce the numbers of infected and of course to reduce the numbers of deaths you know there there is a place for this type of of technology but uh it comes down to you know these very cloudy ethical dilemmas of of well then you know what is excessive and prior to the coronavirus you had government officials entering Uyghur homes and, and basically teaching them a new way to wash their hands. And so, in, instead of washing their hands in in what's typical um, in in many Islamic communities, uh, you know, using a basin and pouring water, usually three times, and then rinsing, communist officials were going in and making them wash their hands with soap. Right, and so on one hand, we know, oh, wow. um, you know, looking through all the, the the health experts, that soap makes a difference, right, uh, with the coronavirus, and it's it's shown to be effective in preventing the disease. So, of course, on one hand, I say, well, this is actually good uh, because it could potentially prevent uh, a widespread outbreak in rural areas in Xinjiang where they lack the medical facilities and professionals to treat an outbreak. On the other hand, I also know that the uh, communist officials were uh, trying to replace the quote-unquote Uyghur way of washing their hands long before the coronavirus and not mm. all of their motivations behind it were because of uh, hygiene, right? There was also you know, trying to distance uh, Uyghurs from an Islamic cultural core, right? Um, And and Mm -hmm. so, again, this is one of those those ethical dilemmas. But um, at what point do we say, okay, we don't need to actually, you know, require us to live a certain way anymore for it to be healthy?
1: Tim Gross, China expert at the Rose-Hulman Institute of Technology, thank you so much.
3: Yeah, thank you again.
1: This is Reset, and I'm Sigal Samuel. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Sigal Samuel. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. We'll be back on Thursday. Later, nerds.